Seminary was something of a contradictory experience for me, my MDiv at any rate. Academically, I I thrived. My mind ate up the theology, the history, the biblical languages. I found all of it thrilling. Personally, however, those first two years were absolutely miserable. I wasn't in seminary two weeks before the foundation of my assurance crumbled beneath me. I can still remember precisely where I was. It was in the 8 a.m. personal evangelism class with Dr. Gray Allison when the thought first occurred to me that I might not actually be saved. This thought struck me like a thunderbolt, and I spent the next two years in a state of existential crisis. Panic, tears, depression, anxiety, crippling fear, uncertainty, the whole works. What was it that sparked this crisis in my soul? Well, looking back, I think it was provoked by two revelations. First, to that point, I had never seriously considered the possibility or the prevalence of false conversion. That is, until I was forced to deal with it in the biblical text. I had read all of the passages before, but somehow it wasn't until I was 22 years old that I seriously considered that I might be one of those who cry out, Lord, Lord, on the last day to whom Jesus says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. That I might be one of those foolish virgins who realizes only too late that I have no oil in my lamp. That I might be one of those of whom Paul spoke, who have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof. And once that seed of doubt took root in my soul, I could not shake the fear. I was paralyzed by it. The Bible became to me a terrifying, mystifying, despairing book. I could find no comfort in its promises because I had no assurance that they applied to me. I trembled beneath every threat of judgment, convinced that I was the object of that threat. And the more I cried out for rescue and found none, the more I became convinced that I had sinned against the Holy Spirit squandered the day of grace, that I was Esau, having traded my birthright for the single meal of fleshly indulgence and was beyond repentance. The second source of my despair came from the meandering nature of my spiritual journey. I professed faith at the age of nine, and I knew what I was doing. I wasn't trying to impress anyone. I was under conviction. I knew I was a sinner. I knew that Christ was the only Savior, and I called out to Him for salvation. And as the years ticked on, I grew in my knowledge of the Word, and I I manifested what would appear to be spiritual fruit. I can attest that I, I earnestly desired holiness and fellowship with Christ, but I also craved sin and immorality. And I was fairly consumed by insecurity and an insatiable lust for the praise of men that led me to do just about anything if it would gain me an ounce of man's approval. I led a dichotomous existence, a Jekyll and Hyde lifestyle of hellish hypocrisy. 
Yet the Lord delivered me by, by sheer grace when I was 21 years old through no design of my own. I wasn't looking for it. It came looking for me. And the next year of my life, my last year of college, was a wonderful, painful journey of repentance and confession and growth in my relationship with Christ. And that year ended with me in seminary in Dr. Allison's 8 a.m. personal evangelism class, knowing that I desired to serve Christ with my life, but not knowing much of anything else. And it was there in seminary that my meandering spiritual journey ran up against passages of Scripture that described a radical alteration produced by the Spirit in regeneration and in conversion. I ran into passages like 1 John 3, 9, that says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now, trying to reconcile that passage with my messy testimony proved for me impossible. How could I have been genuinely converted during those years of hypocrisy and bondage to sin? Yet the problem was, I didn't recall being converted in the meantime. There was no dramatic realization that I was lost and needed to be saved. I'd always thought of myself as a Christian and of my 21-year-old experience as one of repentance and renewal, a renewal of an existing faith in Christ. Trying to make sense of my story proved futile. I simply couldn't, couldn't fit it into the categories that I was finding in Scripture nor did it fit with the nice and neat testimonies that I heard weekly from my classmates and my professors. So the only conclusion that I could come to was that I wasn't saved. So I tried to get saved. Again. And again. And again. And again. But it never worked. It didn't help. My wife didn't know what to do with me. My poor pastor didn't know what to do with me. My professors didn't know what to do with me. I was a wreck, confused, despairing, unable to find joy and peace and comfort in the very scriptures that I was learning to exegete in the original languages. That was 15 years ago. And I've learned something in the years since. My story is not at all unique. I would be willing to bet that somewhere between 20 and 40% of you know something of my experience, if not to that degree. For you, I'm going to preach what I so desperately needed to hear my first year of seminary, when I was where you are. For the rest of you, for whom assurance is not a pressing issue, I'm going to preach what the people you will one day pastor so desperately need to hear from you that they may find the confidence in Christ for which their soul longs. I invite you then to join me in John chapter 6, a passage that has been of immeasurable help to me in finding confidence in my standing in Christ. 
I told you earlier that that intense period of crisis lasted two full years, though periodic episodes of spiritual anxiety would continue for years afterward. It was during my third year of seminary that the light began to dawn, to break in upon the darkness of my soul. The breakthrough coincided with a theological shift that transpired in my heart and in my mind. Simply put, I became convinced of the sovereignty of God in the salvation of sinners, as well as in every other facet of existence. Now, I'm not here to argue for a theological system. This is neither the time nor the place. What I am here to argue this morning is that so long as your confidence rests upon your choice of Christ, you will wander in darkness and you will drown in the sea of doubt. But if you will rest your hope upon Christ's choice of you and his effectual work in redeeming you, calling you, keeping you, and finally in raising you to everlasting life, then your confidence is well-placed and will remain unshakable in the midst of every trial. At the center of my doubt was a nagging thought that somehow I hadn't done it right. I hadn't done conversion right. Conversion in the tradition in which I was raised followed a very familiar set pattern. Hear the gospel, feel convicted of sin, respond, usually by walking the aisle and praying the prayer with the pastor, be baptized, and then onward and upward from there. At the very center of this process lay the individual. Salvation was initiated by him. He took the first step. He made the first move. And so somehow, if the process short-circuited, it was because he did something wrong. He wasn't sincere enough. He hadn't meant it enough. He hadn't felt enough. He had held something back. Listen, my sincerity is a poor foundation for my confidence. How can I ever know if I was or am sincere enough? I need a foundation that is stronger and deeper than my decision for Christ. And it is that stronger and deeper foundation to which Jesus directs us in John 6. At the beginning of John 6, Jesus' Galilean ministry is attended by enormous crowds. Thousands upon thousands are flocking to the shores of the Sea of Galilee to see this miracle-working prophet. Yet by the end of the chapter, Jesus is followed by 12 men, one of whom is a devil. What transpires between the beginning of John 6 and the end of John 6? Well, Jesus distinguishes between true and false faith. He exposes the hidden unbelief of the crowds, and in essence, he sends them away. The chapter begins on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, verse 1, where Jesus is attended by thousands, verse 2, because they, or verse 10 rather, because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick, verse 2, which is your first clue that John wants us to be skeptical of the crowd's faith. Jesus feeds the multitude with only five loaves and two fish, a miracle that is not lost on the crowd. And they proclaim, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And they try to take Jesus by force and make him king. Verses 14 and 15. Jesus, however, he wants no part of their flawed conception of lordship. And he withdraws. 
He sends his disciples across the sea by boat to Capernaum while he goes up to the mountain to pray before traversing the sea on foot. Shortest distance between two points, I suppose. The next day, the crowd follows after them and they find Jesus in Capernaum. But almost before they can speak, Jesus confronts them about their false faith. Look at verse 26. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Now, the crowds have been impressed with the miracle of the fish and the loaves, no doubt. Jesus, however, had performed a sign, Simeon. The crowds had only seen a miracle. A sign pointed to a deeper theological significance, an important truth that was not to be missed. A miracle could just be a raw demonstration of supernatural power. Jesus exposes the essentially superficial nature of their interest in him. They were hungry and he had fed them. That's why they're here. Perhaps he might do it again today, they hope. Jesus tells them they're aiming entirely too low. The manna, he says, that your fathers ate in the wilderness, it spoiled after a day. It had to be gathered again, morning by morning, if they were to eat and live. Jesus says, what I'm offering you is infinitely better. I'm offering food that is life, that endures eternally. But they still don't get it. Jesus had told them to work for the food that endures to eternal life. And they, they latch on to that word work. Verse 28, then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, to believe on him whom he has sent. Jesus says, you don't get it. Eternal life is not found in performing some new work and obeying some new law. Eternal life is found in me. It's found in receiving me for the life, the sustenance, the satisfaction of your soul in the same way that your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness in order to stay alive. Eat my words like your fathers ate bread. Well, at this point, the crowd is starting to pick up what Jesus is laying down. They know that he's making quite a claim here. And if Jesus is going to claim to be greater than Moses because he's providing better food than Moses, then he better be prepared to show them something more spectacular than simply a reduplication of the miracle of the manna. Jesus replies, first of all, it was not Moses who fed your fathers in the wilderness, it was my father. And furthermore, have you never read that the manna was given that you might know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God? I am the true manna that the Father has given from heaven to give life to the world. Verse 34, they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Sounds pretty good by way of response. But judging by Jesus' reaction, they're still not tracking with him. They've understood Jesus to mean that what he could provide was better than what their fathers had eaten, but their minds are still totally blind as to what Jesus is saying. And so, in verse 35, Jesus turns from veiled illusion to explicit revelation. 
Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He then charges the unbelieving, or the Galilean Jews rather, with unbelief. Verse 36, but I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. And this brings us to the main point of this sermon. What will be Jesus' response to the unbelief of the masses? What will be his response to the spiritual blindness, their hardness of heart, their failure to see in his works testimony to his deity, their failure to hear in his words, the very words of eternal life? He's already been rejected in Jerusalem. That was John 5. Now he's rejected in Galilee in John 6. Where will he be received? So what is his response? Does he get discouraged? Does he feel like a failure? Is he afraid that maybe he was wrong? Maybe this whole messianic mission might be founded upon an illusion. Or or maybe the problem is with his ministry methodology, a failure, you know, to really connect with people's felt needs. No, you will find that Jesus responds with absolute confidence that there will be genuine believers. There will be a bride for the bridegroom. The good shepherd will have a flock and that when the son of man comes, he will find faith upon the earth. The suffering servant will have the reward of his sufferings. He will see it and be satisfied. He has absolute confidence. He rests in full assurance of faith. And I want to show you how, because I want you to have that same confidence. I want you to take whatever man-centered, works-based foundation you have underneath your assurance, and I want you to replace it with whatever he's got. So on what is Christ's confidence based? It is based upon three infallible works of grace. Number one, Christ's unshakable confidence is founded upon the Father's sovereign election. Why is Jesus not discouraged over the unbelief of these Galilean Jews? It's because, verse 37, he knows all that the Father has given me will come to me. Now, let me point out three truths about this gift from the Father to the Son of a people who will come to him. First, it is a sovereign gift. When did this gifting take place? Well, verse 37 does not specify, only that it takes place prior to the coming of those given by the Father to the Son. But I submit to you that the only time frame ever applied to this gift of a people is before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1.4, Revelation 13.8 and 17.8. But when this gifting took place is not vital to my argument. It wasn't vital to Christ's confidence. Rather, it is the fact that the giving takes place logically prior to the coming. God did not give to Christ those who came to Christ. Those who came to Christ are those who were already given to Christ. They came to the Son because they were given to the Son. The same relationship is seen later in John chapter 10 when Jesus tells the unbelieving Jews in Jerusalem, you don't believe because you're not my sheep. One does not become a sheep by believing. One believes because one is a sheep. The fact that the giving is logically and not merely temporally prior to the coming means that the giving did not originate in something in us. 
The father did not look down the corridors of time, see who would come to Jesus, and on that basis, give them to Jesus. That would give Christ no confidence in this moment when everyone is rejecting him. Rather, the choice of whom the Father would give originated within the Father himself. The choice was rooted in God's own sovereign purpose of grace. That is the basis of Christ's confidence. Secondly, you'll note that it's a particular gift. Not everyone is given to the Son by the Father. The grammar of verse 37 simply won't allow it. If all that the Father gives to the Son come to the Son... And not everyone comes to the Son, as has just been demonstrated in verse 36. Then it is evident that not everyone was given to the Son, but only a particular people. Third, it's, an, it's a certain gift. Just look, at, look in awe at the absolute confidence Jesus has that the Father's redemptive will can never be thwarted. All that the Father has given me will come to me. Future, indicative, active. There's no subjunctive mood here in verse 37. There is no doubt implied. He's certain. So Christ's confidence in the ultimate success of his mission is founded upon the Father's sovereign election. In eternity past, before the foundations of the world, the Father of his own sovereign pleasure and purpose of grace chose a particular people for his Son and gave them to Jesus. And all those people will certainly be the ones who come to Jesus in faith and are raised by Jesus on the last day. Second, Christ's confidence is founded upon the Spirit's effectual summons of those given by the Father to the Son. All that the Father gives me will come to me. But how? What's the connection between the giving to the Son and the coming to the Son? How can Jesus be so confident of his claim when the vast majority of those who heard the Son refused to come to him, but turned away in unbelief? What makes the difference in our present experience between those who come and those who don't? Well, I can tell you what it's not. The difference is not cultural. It's evident in John 6. Those who believed were of the same culture, language, customs as those who rejected. They were all Galilean Jews. The difference is not intellectual. It's not that some possessed a greater natural capacity to grasp Jesus' often veiled teachings. Those who believed were common tradesmen, and very often those who rejected were among the intellectual elite. The difference is not religious. This crowd would have attended the same set of synagogues. They would have heard the same scriptures, prayed the same prayers. Indeed, Jesus frequently found a more receptive audience among those who were irreligious. The difference is not moral. Seems to me that this is the entire point of the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. No, Jesus gives us the answer quite clearly in John 6. When the crowd begins to grumble at his words, verses 41 and 42, Jesus responds, verse 44, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, a lot has been written about the forcefulness of that verb, elko in the Greek, translated draw. And I'm going to leave that to your own word studies to determine how much of the element of 
compulsion lies behind it because I think that debate misses the point. The fact is, Jesus describes the drawing of the Father in utterly effectual terms. Those whom the Father draws, the Son raises. How many? The implication is all of them. I think verse 37 can be combined with verse 44 to create something of an ordo salutis. Those whom the Father chose, he gave to the Son. Those whom the Father gave to the Son, he draws to the Son. Those whom the Father draws to the Son, come to the Son. Those who come to the Son are kept and raised by the Son on the last day. In In other words, this drawing activity of the Father is particular, He draws only those whom he has given, and it is effectual. None of those who are drawn then fail to come. This is not an invitation to be accepted or declined. This is a divine summons to Christ. But it occurs in a very particular way. When the crowds again grumble at Jesus' words, verse 60, right? This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Jesus responds, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him by the Father. Jesus says that the Father draws by means of the life-giving spirit through the word of Christ. As the word of Christ, that is the gospel, is preached, the spirit breathes life into souls that are dead in trespasses and sins, and they lie, they live. They are convicted of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. They behold Christ as the Father's glorious provision for their salvation, and they freely, willingly, and joyfully come to Christ to receive him as the bread of life, as the fountain of living water, as the Lamb of God who takes away their sin, and they rest all of their hope upon his blood and his righteousness. So Christ's confidence in the ultimate success of his mission is founded upon the Spirit's effectual summons. He knows that his word will not finally return void, but by the power of the Spirit, it will accomplish all the Father's will, namely to bring all his people to himself. Finally, Christ's confidence is founded upon the Son's sufficient mediation. The Father gave them, the Spirit draws them, and Christ saves them completely. All that the Father gives me, verse 37, will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, I don't have time to unpack all of these verses. I'd love to, but I can't. So let me just break it down. Three saving works. Propitiation, intercession, and resurrection. First, Christ will never cast us out because he has provided a sufficient atonement for our sins. He is the Lamb of God, John 1.29, who takes away the sins of the world. 
He's the good shepherd, John 10, 11, who lays down his life for the sheep. He is the Christ, John 19, 30, who cried out from the cross, it is finished. Because the debt was paid, the glory of God vindicated, the wrath of God absorbed and satisfied. He will not cast out his own because there remains no just cause to do so. Where there is no sin, there is no condemnation. Second, Christ will never cast us out because it is the Father's will that he keep us. And this he does by his constant intercession for us at the Father's right hand. Jesus prays that our faith will not fail. He prays our perseverance into existence. He keeps us. The good shepherd loses none of his sheep. Finally, Christ will never cast us out because it is the Father's will that he raise us up on the last day. From beginning to end, none are lost. From the Father's sovereign election to the Spirit's effectual summons to the Son's sufficient mediation, there is 100% efficiency in the work of redemption. And that is the foundation of Christ's confidence. Now, I know what you're thinking. If you're perceptive, there's something missing here. You cannot make Christ's confidence your confidence because you're not yet assured that you are found within that 100% efficient chain of redemption. And I understand, I've been there. Your question is not, does Christ save all who come to him? You know he does. Your question is, have I truly come to him? In a sense, everything that I've said up to this point is necessary theological foundation. Now comes the application. Now comes the freedom. Now comes the joy. John gives us a clear picture of saving faith at the end of this chapter, and it shines brightly against the backdrop of the unbelief of the crowd. Look with me at verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So first, let's ask the question, what does it mean to come to Jesus? That's the language that Jesus has used throughout this discourse, 35, 37, 44, 65. Do you remember how the crowds came to Jesus? They came for miracle bread, like their fathers had in the wilderness, The distinction is so subtle, but it's so important. They came to Jesus for his gifts, for his power to add satisfaction to their existing lives, whether by filling their bellies with bread, verse 26, or by restoring the kingdom to Israel, verse 15. Their interest in Jesus is essentially temporal, self-centered, mercenary. They came for what Jesus could provide, and when he failed to provide it, they cast him aside, just like Judas. Now, do not let your mind run off into wild thoughts that maybe you're Judas, a devil. Jesus, or Judas rather, came to Jesus just like the crowds had. 
John gives testimony of this, telling us that Judas was a thief from the beginning. John 12, 6. His God was gold. Judas wanted to ride Jesus' coattails into a position of authority in the earthly kingdom that he imagined Jesus had come to establish. And when he realized Jesus hadn't come to be that kind of king, he betrayed him. But that's not why you've come to Jesus, is it? To get rich? To be exalted in an earthly kingdom? To be glorified in the eyes of men? By contrast, the true disciples came to Jesus because he alone possesses the words of eternal life. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. They came to Jesus not so he could add value to their present lives, but so that he could give them life, be their life. And he was their only hope. They had been convinced. He says, we have come to know how, by the Spirit, through the Word, that Jesus was the Messiah, the Holy One of God. And on him, they had rested all of their hope of forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. Can you say the same? Are you convinced that Jesus is the only hope for sinners, that there is nowhere else to go, that he alone possesses the words of eternal life? I remember in my deepest moments of despair, I would pray and I would imagine and put myself there at the bar of God's judgment with all of my sins and all of my shame and all of my darkness brought to light and I would enter my plea. I have no hope but Christ. I have no plea but his blood and righteousness. All that you have charged me with is just and right and I deserve condemnation. And I would picture myself literally clinging to Jesus with both hands, empty hands, and saying, if I am to be eternally condemned, you're going to have to drag me away from Christ. That's what it means to come to Jesus. You don't come to him to add value to your present life, to add satisfaction to your life. You don't come to him to add to your life. You come to him for new life. You come to him because your present life is wretched and sinful and meaningless and dark and despairing and because he alone has the words of eternal life. Have you come to Christ like that? If so, you have every warrant to insert yourself right in the middle of verse 37, right in the middle of that infallible chain of redemption. And you can know with certainty that two things are gloriously true of you. Number one, you were chosen by the Father before the foundation of the world and given to the Son, and you were summoned by the Spirit to life and to faith. You did not come to Jesus of your own will, so you don't have to worry about whether or not you you did it right. The only reason you have come to Christ like this is because you were chosen for Christ and called to Christ. Otherwise, you would not have come. Second, you can be assured that you will never be cast out but will be raised on the last day. Jesus has satisfied the righteous wrath of God against your every sin. He's not angry with you. He's not disappointed in you. Jesus intercedes for you constantly at the right hand of the Father. You cannot stumble so as to fall. 
you're going to make it. And on the last day, Jesus will return in power and great glory, and he will send forth his angels to gather his elect from the four winds, from the four corners of the earth, and you will be among them. And you will stand in his presence blameless with great joy in a new heaven and a new earth. That is how you make Christ's confidence your confidence. You take your works, your will, your effort, your testimony, your past completely out of the equation and you simply ask yourself, is Christ my only hope for eternal life such that I could never turn away from him and never depart from him? Can you say, Lord, to whom shall I go? You have the words of eternal life. I have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. If so, hear Jesus' words to you this morning. Have I not chosen you? Yes, he did. He chose you. He redeemed you. He called you. He will keep you. And he will raise you on the last day. My Father, I thank you for the work of redemption. The work performed by the Father, the Spirit, and the Son. And I thank you for this chapter which shows us the infallible confidence that Christ had that your redemptive purposes would be fulfilled. And I pray that by the power of that same Spirit, you would help us to make Christ's confidence our confidence. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.